Hi, this is Rosie Tillis and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We are excited to announce the launch of our website, theresidentreview.com, and we invite you all to visit our website. Again, it's theresidentreview.com for episodes, scripts, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message about our sponsors. In this episode, we'll be discussing hand nerves, and this is part of our quick hit series, which is a series based on in-service exam questions from the past five to eight years. So in today's episode on hand nerves, we're talking about nerve repair, compression neuropathies, brachial plexus, EMG, and miscellaneous factoids. All right, Rachel, you want to start us off? Sure. Thank you, Rosie. So first, a little bit of nerve anatomy. There's different fibers. The A delta fibers are for sharp pain. The C fibers are for burning pain, which is typically implicated in CRPS. The pachinian corpuscles, those detect vibration in subcutaneous tissues. And Meisner's corpuscles are found in the intermediate dermal ridge, and they're good for moving two-point discrimination. And the Merkel cell is for static two-point discrimination. Next, we'll talk about nerve repair. So there's the Sunderland grades. Grade one is neuropraxia. Two, three, and four are varying degrees of axonotmesis with complete and variable recovery, depending on your injury. Grade five is complete transection or neuronotmesis with no recovery expected unless fixed. And then grade six is a segmental nerve injury, and we've definitely been tested on those. Remember that EMG findings of nerve injury occur three weeks after the injury, and that age is generally the best predictor of outcomes for nerve repair, meaning that younger patients have better outcomes. If you have a nerve injury in an open wound, you should repair early. If it's a crush or significant injury, you should wait six weeks, particularly like a gunshot wound. Primary repair can be completed in clean lacerations with less than one centimeter gap. And remember that allograft can be used for three centimeters or less. And I think the most recent study showed that it can be seven centimeters or less. If less than this, then you can use an allograft. And remember that conduits can be used for less than three centimeter gaps. For repair on a nerve with tension, remember the conduit is a good option. Then there's different ways to handle a neuroma. So if it's a neuroma and continuity, you can perform a nerve conduction velocity study intraoperatively to identify non-functioning fascicles. You can also microdissect neuroma with an EMG of motor fascicles if it's sensory deficits only, that way you don't injure the motor nerves. If it's neuroma not in continuity, remember you'll need excision followed by grafting. And if we're talking about donor nerves for grafting of digital nerves, those are best suited with the terminal branch of the posterior interosseous nerve. And the reason that is, is because it innervates the wrist capsule. It has no sensory deficits and it lies on the floor of the fourth extensor compartment. So it's easy to access. Rosie, do you mind taking us through the beginning of compression neuropathies? I would love nothing more. So compression neuropathy is nerve entrapment, which is a disproportion between the volume of the nerve and the space through which it passes. This can be acute or chronic. Electrodiagnostic testing can be used to diagnose this. So you have a nerve conduction study, which can show segmental demyelination and slowed nerve conduction. And then electromyography is good to look for axonal loss. And then now we'll go through the different nerves and some of the syndromes that are associated with compression neuropathies in each of them. So the median nerve accompanies the brachial artery through the arm. It doesn't branch until the elbow. And then it, it travels medial to the brachial artery at the elbow and then splits, splits between the two heads of the PT. Which we've been tested on. Yes. 
and then it travels between FDS and FTP and becomes superficial five centimeters proximal to the wrist between FDS and FCR. The nerve in the distal forearm is composed of about 20% motor fibers and 80% sensory fibers, and the motor fibers leave volarly. Okay, things innervated by the median nerve um, are the intrinsics. So you can remember these by the word full, F-O-A-L. Um, this is innervated by the recurrent median nerve, and it includes FPB, or one head of it, the opponent's pollicis, abductor pollicis brevis, and the lateral two lumbricals. So that's, again, F-O-A-L. The recurrent motor branch runs radially to the thenar muscles, and there are three variations of where this motor branch comes out. You can have an extra ligamentous branch, interligamentous branch, and transligamentous branch. The palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerves arises proximal to the transverse carpal ligament between palmaris longus and FCR. It originates five centimeters proximal to the wrist flexor crease. And inside the carpal tunnel, we have the median nerve, the nine flexor tendons, the roof is the transverse carpal ligament, floor is the radial carpal ligaments, and the borders of the carpal tunnel include the scaphoid and trapezium radially, as well as the trichotum and hamate ulnarly. Carpal tunnel syndrome is the most common compressive neuropathy. It usually is characterized by intermittent to constant paresthesias in the median distribution, particularly at night. Um, frequent pain, which may radiate, radiate proximally, decreased dexterity, and then weakness and atrophy comes later on in the disease. It is associated with diabetes, hypertension, pregnancy, uh, renal disease, inflammatory arthritis, trauma, masses, and amyloidosis. Release of the transverse carpal ligament releases Guillain's canal in 89% of people with um, relief of their ulnar symptoms as well. Physical exam and carpal tunnel syndrome is characterized by thenar atrophy, so you want to make sure you test APP and pinch strength. So sensibility in carpal tunnel, you can test two-point discrimination is more sensitive for a severed nerve, and then the Semswinstein is uh, sensitive for compression injuries. Provocative tests for carpal tunnel syndrome includes Durkin's, which is the most sensitive and specific, and that's compression of the carpal tunnel. Phalen's and Tunnel's are um, wrist flexion and tapping on the nerve from distal, distal to proximal, respectively. And then on EMG or nerve conduction studies, you'll see an abnormal nerve latency of over four milliseconds. You can also do a diagnostic ultrasound and carpal tunnel syndrome, which can look at transverse images. And you want to look at the area of the median nerve in carpal tunnel and median and the median nerve proximal to that. And then do a ratio of the two to see the amount of compression. Treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome includes night splints, sterile and steroid injections. The injections uh, may provide relief for 40 to 80% of people for days to months with eventual recurrence, usually at four to six weeks. Surgical indications for carpal tunnel syndrome um, include not include failed non-operative treatment, constant symptoms, weakness, or motor denervation with EMG. Surgery for carpal tunnel syndrome includes opening the transverse carpal ligament on the ulnar side. Endoscopic carpal tunnel release usually provides a faster rehab time. And then the open technique for carpal tunnel has decreased recurrent median nerve injury, which we've been tested on. With a revision carpal tunnel release, about 50% of people will improve. And adjunctive procedures include a hypothenar fat pad flap, a radial forearm fascial flap, a radial artery perforator-based flap to prevent scarring. All right, that was a lot for carpal tunnel syndrome. We'll move on to AIN, so anterior interosseous nerve, which is a nerve branching off of the median nerve. It's a motor nerve, and it divides from the median nerve around four to six centimeters distal to the elbow, passes between the two heads of the PT as well. It innervates the FDP and of the index and long, FPL, and then the PQ, which is hard to test. 
that's tested on frequently. So remember it's FDP, the index and long, FPL and pronator quadratus. Sites of compression of the AIN include the deep head of the PT, the edge of the Lacerdus fibrosus, the FDS arcade, the accessory head of FPL, which is also called Ganser's muscle, an aberrant radial artery or a thrombosed ulnar artery. AIN compression will present with motor loss without sensory involvement. So AIN compression, motor loss without sensory involvement. You can have the inability to perform the OK sign. You may have some intrinsic muscle palsy and you can test this by resisted pronation with the elbow maximally flexed. Remember that you may have a Martin Gruber anastomosis, which is an ulnar and median nerve anastomosis in the forearm. Presentation of AIN can present as complete or incomplete. It can have the spontaneous onset of pain in the proximal forearm and the inability to flex the thumb IP and index and long DIP. You can also have weak forearm pronation and treatment of AIN syndrome depends on the etiology. If it's a traction injury, you will observe it. If it's a traumatic injury, you can explore it. And surgery for this can include a Lacerda's fibrosis release, a PT release, or an FDP fibrous arch release, depending on the etiology of the compression. Pronator syndrome is another median nerve compression syndrome. It presents with pain in the proximal forearm and weakness, and then paresthesias in the median nerve distribution, including the thenar eminence. Physical exam will show a Tunnell's motor weakness and diminished sensibility. EMG and nerve conduction studies are usually normal in pronator syndrome. The etiology of pronator syndrome can include a fibrous band, which is the ligament of Struthers, Lacerda's fibrosis, the pronator muscle, or the fibrous arch of the FDS. Treatment of pronator syndrome includes splinting or activity modification in most people. Surgery can be up to 90% successful by release of the ligament of Struthers, the supracondylar process of the humerus, Lacerda's fibrosis, the fascia of the superficial head of the pronator arch, all right, so let's just go over these again. So carpal tunnel syndrome is what will most probably most frequently be tested on. And that's where you have the paresthesias and pain at night. You won't have any palmar numbness. So if the patient presents with palmar numbness, you need to start thinking about a more proximal compression. For AIN, you have all motor symptoms and no sensory changes. And so AIN compression neuropathy, you'll have weakness of the FDP of index and long and FPL. That's what you'll be looking at. And then pronator syndrome is going to be pain and you can plus or minus have weakness, but you'll have paresthesias. And the way you differentiate that from a carpal tunnel is you'll have palmar paresthesias from your palmar cutaneous branch. So that's kind of how you differentiate the three of those. You do need to know every structure that can cause compression of each of these nerves and they'll try to trick you up. So remember ligament of Struthers is median nerve, but we'll talk about in a minute. The arcade of Struthers is the ulnar nerve. Okay. So I'll next go over radial nerve compressions. Remember that this comes from the C5 to T1 roots. It spirals around the posterior aspect of the humerus with the profunda brachii artery, and then pierces the lateral intramuscular septum of the arm seven and a half centimeters proximal to the trochlea. So that's important in humerus fractures. And then it will course between the brachialis and brachioradialis, which you need to know anterior to the lateral epicondyle. It then divides into the superficial and deep branches, which will be your PIN and superficial branch of the radial nerve. The PIN travels, it'll split the supinator muscle and it innervates all the extensors of your forearm, except for your mobile wad. So your mobile wad will be your brachioradialis and ECRL. ECRB is typically still innervated by PIN. So if you do have a PIN palsy, you'll still have wrist extension. Then the PIN travels between EDC and ECRB in the forearm, which we have been tested on. 
The PIN will innervate from ulnar to radial, so ECU first, and the most distal innervation is EIP, which we've also been tested on. The superficial branch of the radial nerve runs between the brachial radialis and ECRL, which we have been tested on, and that provides sensation to the dorsal radial aspect of the hand. It runs below the brachialis in the mid forearm and it becomes subcutaneous eight to nine centimeters proximal to the radial styloid where it pierces the fascia. And we've also been tested on that. The radial nerve can be compressed to any one of five points in the radial tunnel. So fascia adjacent to the radial capitellar joint, the recurrent radial artery or leash of Henry, the tendinous margin of ECRB, and then the leading edge or fascial band of the supinator muscle, which is also known as the arcade We'll now talk about three different radial nerve syndromes, posterior interosseous nerve syndrome, radial tunnel, and the Wartenberg syndrome. So PIN syndrome is weakness and pain in the forearm in the absence of sensory loss. So motor only, you'll have weakness at, of extension at the MP and PIP joints. And remember that you'll still have wrist extension and it'll deviate radially because your ECRL is innervated by your radial nerve proper. So remember you'll have progressive loss of your extensors. Etiology, this is typically entrapment at the elbow. So it can be a ganglion, lipoma, bursa, radial head dislocation. And treatment is generally conservative for eight to 12 weeks with activity modification. And surgery can be approached from many different approaches, anterior, BR splitting, or any of your extensor intervals. The next thing is radial tunnel syndrome. So this is more common. This is pain over the anterior lateral aspect of the elbow. It increases with passive pronation or wrist flexion or active supination and wrist extension. You have night pain but you don't have any sensory or motor disturbance. So this is just pain and it can coexist with tennis elbow. Sites of compression tested on fibrous bands, vascular leash, ECRB, proximal supinator, distal supinator, or arcadophrose. You'll have a pain over the PIN. So lateral humerus and elbow, extensor mass and dorsal wrist. Just think kind of over your mobile wad. Provocative tests, which we've been tested on is the middle finger test, which is resisted extension of the middle finger and resisted supination. EMG or nerve conduction studies are not typically helpful and treatment is conservative with activity modification or release of all those structures we talked about. And then finally, we have Wartenberg syndrome, which is superficial branch of the radial nerve entrapment. So this is typically from an external compression like jewelry or compression from the brachioradialis and ECRL, and it is exacerbated with pronation of the forearm. You'll have radiodorsal hand pain, numbness, and paresthesias. Provocative testing will include tunnels over the nerve and pain with pronation. Typically it's conservative management. So modification, no jewelry, steroid injection, but you can release this 80 to 85% successful. And you'll release the deep fascia around the nerve plus or minus a Dequervain's release, which is the first dorsal compartment. All right. Ulnar nerve. So this comes from the root C8 through T1 and it runs medial to the brachial artery. And then behind the medial epicondyle, there are no branches of the ulnar nerve in the arm until the elbow. It enters the forearm between the two heads of the FCU. So the ulnar nerve splits the FCU, um, travels between the FCU and FDP and crosses the wrist in Guillain's canal and then divides into superficial and deep branches. It is ulnar and volar to the ulnar artery. Ulnar motor branches innervate FCU, FDP of the ring and small fingers, palmaris brevis, the hypothenar muscles, your lumbricals of your ring and small fingers, and the dorsal interosseae, palmar interosseae, thenar muscles, including adductor pollicis, that's AD doctor, and deep head of the flexor pollicis brevis. Ulnar nerve anatomy. So the motor function within the ulnar nerve is ulnar and dorsal to the sensory group at the wrist. And in the arm, the motor fascicles lie between the sensory fascicles. The dorsal sensory branch of the ulnar nerve branches six centimeters proximal to the ulnar head to supply the ulnar dorsum of the hand. 
Ortenberg's sign is abduction of the little finger, which is ulnar clawing due to a low ulnar nerve injury. High ulnar nerve injuries uh, includes anything proximal to FCU and FDP can have unsatisfactory results with minimal return of intrinsic function because the motor end plates become refractory to re-innervation at 15 to 18 months. So you can transfer AIN to the deep branch of the ulnar nerve for a shorter distance transfer and the loss of pronator function is insignificant. Like Rachel said earlier, the low ulnar nerve injuries can cause clawing due to paralysis of the intrinsics with unopposed flexors and extensors. So you have extension at the MP and flexion at the IP. Ulnar nerve injury at the elbow, if there's a gap in repair, you can perform a transposition of up to four centimeters in length. Cubital tunnel syndrome is a compression neuropathy of the ulnar nerve. It is characterized by intermittent paresthesias in the ulnar two digits. And you also have extrinsic and intrinsic motor weakness. FDP to the ring and the small fingers, you may have mild clawing as well. Potential sites of compression in the cubital tunnel include the arcade of Struthers, the medial intermuscular septum, the medial epicondyle, the cubital tunnel or Osborne's ligament, the deep aponeurosis of FCU, the triceps, or anconius epitrochlearis, which is an anomalous muscle. Which we've been tested on. The physical exam in cubital tunnel syndrome includes atrophy, um, decrease in motor strength and sensibility, a positive Tunnell sign, as well as the elbow flexion test as a provocative maneuver. And you'll look for nerve subluxation with elbow flexion when it, the nerve comes out of the retrocondylar groove. Cubital tunnel should have some sensory loss in the dorsum of the hand, which can differentiate it from compression at Guillain's canal. And then you also see dorsal interosseal wasting, Wartenberg's sign, which is ulnar clawing. You can have Froman's sign. When you ask them to grab a paper, they'll grasp it with the IP joint of their thumb instead of the dorsal interossei. You can also have the pyramid sign, which is characteristic of loss of intrinsics in the hand. Treatment of cubital tunnel syndrome is started with conservative treatment, which is an elbow splint and 45 degrees of extension, followed by surgical treatment where you can do in situ decompression anterior transposition, which can be done in a subcutaneous, submuscular, or intramuscular plane, or a medial epicondylectomy, but none of these are superior to the other. The medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve can be injured during ulnar nerve neuroplasty and is best identified and corrected by excision of the neuroma and nerve stump implantation. Ulnar tunnel syndrome, also known as Guillain's canal, can be divided into three zones, and the zone of compression correlates with the symptoms. The distal ulnar tunnel is four and a half centimeters in length, and the entrance is the proximal edge of the volar carpal ligament. The exit is the distal margin of the fibrous arch. The roof is the volar carpal ligament. The floor is the transverse carpal ligament and flexor inoculum. The lateral wall is the handmade transverse carpal ligament. The medial wall is the adductor digiti minimi and the pisiform or piece of handmade ligament. Presentation of ulnar tunnel syndrome or against canal is numbness or paresthesias in the palmar aspect of the ring and the small fingers. It does not come with dorsal sensation loss. That's important to note if you're thinking about Guillain's canal versus cubital tunnel syndrome, because cubital tunnel syndrome will present with dorsal numbness, whereas Guillain's canal does not because the dorsal sensory branch of the ulnar nerve will branch proximally to the wrist crease and proximal to Guillain's canal. Um, you'll also have weakness and atrophy due to your ulnar intrinsics. There are multiple sites of compression of the ulnar tunnel syndrome, which Rachel will tell you that we get tested on often. The ulnar tunnel syndrome sites of compression include the palmaris brevis, the fibrous origin of FDM, an ulnar artery aneurysm or thrombosis, hook of hammock fractures, 
or ganglion cysts, which is the most common? Most common ganglion cysts, check. The um, zones of compression of the ulnar tunnel syndrome, which if you remember, we talked about these zones correlate with the symptoms. So zone one, you get both motor and sensory symptoms. The zone two compression is a deep motor nerve compression and usually presents with isolated motor. Zone three compression, you have sensory impairment alone. Evaluation of ulnar tunnel syndrome includes x-rays with a carpal tunnel view, a CT or MRI, or an EMG or nerve conduction study. And if the hook of the handmaid is broken, you can perform an excision as treatment. Um, other treatment options include conservative if it's due to repetitive trauma or there's no mass or idiopathic. If it is refractory or have an identifiable cause, you can do surgery. And then double crush syndrome is when you have uh, sites of compression in both the neck and at a distal site. You should still release it distally um, to treat the peripheral site first and sometimes the symptoms can improve. All right, so Rosie left me with brachial plexus and EMG. So <laughs> I am not a self-professed brachial plexus expert. We'll try to get through this. We'll start kind of going from proximally to distally. And the way I remember the different divisions is a very Texas mnemonic, which I think everybody's learned something different, but I learned it from real Texans drink cold beer. So roots, trunks, divisions, cords, and branches. We'll start with the roots. So roots contribute to the long thoracic nerve. So C5 to C7, long thoracic nerve. For the trunks, there's upper, middle, and lower. So upper trunk um, is C5 and C6. And this can cause an herb palsy, which is an obstetric brachial plexus complication. So you'll have weaker absent elbow flexions, shoulder abduction, and external rotation. It's the waiter's tip posture. So it spares the lower trunk. For recovery, you can use biceps as a predictor. So if there's some function at two months, you'll likely have normal arm function. If there's no function at six months, it's a bad prognosis. So you'll want to operate and operating is typically between three and six months. If with a C5, C6 lesion, you can have a supination deformity. So you'll want to redirect your biceps tendon through the interosseous membrane. So the biceps is the strongest supinator in the arm and then attach it to itself. And that can help with a supination. So next for the upper trunk, the suprascapular nerve comes off the upper trunk. This is the first branch. Symptoms of injury include diffuse posterior shoulder pain, atrophy of the supraspinatus and infraspinatus, which innervates weakness and external rotation of the shoulder. And remember that the nerve transfer for this is a spinal accessory nerve to the suprascapular nerve, spinal accessory to suprascapular. There's a middle trunk and lower trunk, although we're less tested on. So I will skip that. We have divisions and then we have cords. So the cords, lateral, medial, and posterior. The lateral cord is from C5 to C7 and contributes to the median and musculoskeletal nerves, the pectoral nerves. And so you'll think biceps function, supination, and finger flexors. The medial cord is from C8 to T1 and it gives fibers of the medial pectoral nerve, the MABC, and contributes to both the median and ulnar nerves. And it's mainly responsible for intrinsic innervation. So we had a test question in which the median and ulnar nerves were involved, but the radial nerve was not. And that was a medial cord injury. And then the posterior cord is contributions from C5 to C8. And that contributes to the axillary nerve, the thoracodorsal nerve, and the subscapular nerve, as well as the radial nerve. So you want to think latissimus. So you'll have difficulty with adduction, a deduction, shoulder extension, and internal rotation. Finally, we'll go through branches. So that's what we've been talking about with our compressions, median nerves. So if you have an AIN palsy, you can think about a transfer of a brachialis branch from the musculoskeletal cutaneous nerve or a PIN branch from the ERCB. For ulnar nerves, so 
you want to think about AIN to ulnar nerve for ulnar nerve palsy, we're very frequently tested on this. So if you have a high ulnar nerve injury, then you can think about an AIN nerve transfer to restore intrinsic function, because as we know, a nerve heals one millimeter a day. So a high ulnar nerve injury is not likely to innervate the intrinsics before the motor end plates die. So if you have a high ulnar nerve injury, the best option is probably an AIN nerve transfer to the ulnar nerve. Um, there's radial nerve and then there's the axillary nerve we're frequently tested on this so remember the axillary nerve arises from the posterior cord c5 c6 and it gives us branches to the teres minor and deltoid so it's responsible for shoulder abduction injury to this can be seen in glenohumeral joint dislocations proximal humerus fractures or arthroscopy and you want to remember that the axillary nerve does transverse to the quadrangular space so it is in danger there and the nerve transfer for axillary palsy is from the nerve to the triceps, the radial nerve to the axillary nerve. And we are also frequently tested on that. And finally, the musculoskeletal nerve, they love this one. This one provides motor axons to the brachialis, the biceps brachii, which is the strongest supinator in the arm. And this provides elbow flexion as well as the cracrobrachialis. And so remember that the LABC or lateral anabrachial cutaneous nerve is a continuation of the musculoskeletal nerve in the forearm. So it's responsible for lateral or radial forearm sensation. So if you have a laceration to the musculoskeletal nerve, you can transpose the ulnar nerve to the biceps and median nerve to the brachialis. And that's called an Oberlin transfer with a, I think a McKinnon modification. So Oberlin transfer, elbow flexion, FCU branches to MSK, FCU branches to MSK. Thoracic outlet syndrome can present as pain in the upper chest and back, intermittent coolness of the hand, numbness and tingling of the fingers, and you want to test an ADSEN test, which compresses the scalenes, resulting in a loss of radial pulse, or you can have a positive ruse test, which is an elevated arm test that reproduces the symptoms. Treatment is resection of the first rib, scalenectomies, or both, but you need studies first to determine if it's a vascular or nerve etiology. So you'll get studies first, so non-invasive electrodiagnostics, et cetera. Finally, you can have radiation-induced brachial plexopathy. This is when radiation is directed at the chest. You can have sensory symptoms with generalized swelling and weakness, and you most prominently have a C5, C6, so just like the herbs palsy. All right, EMG injuries and brachial plexus. So preganglionic injuries were very frequently tested on this. So the sensory nerve action potential will be normal, but the patient will be clinically insensate. And then the CMAPs or the compound muscular action potential will be low or absent. So a preganglionic root injury signifies loss of motor with preservation of sensory nerve conductivity, even though they are clinically insensate. And then postganglionic, you'll have low snap and CMAP. So you'll have no sensory or motor. Pre, you'll have sensory will be normal, okay? On the EMG, not clinically. And then if you're talking about free functional muscle transfers for restoration of elbow flexion, this is mainly provided by the gracilis, which is innervated by the obturator nerve. Other options include latissimus, rectus, fascis lateralis, and pec minor. All right, quickly going through EMGs. So there's a nerve conduction study, and then there's also an electromyography. So nerve conduction study will look at latency, conduction, velocity, and amplitude. So the number of functional axons in the nerve. EMG or electromyography is needle tested, and that's from proximal to distal. So rest activity in acute or chronic denervation, you'll show early fibrillation and sharp waves. The late stages will reveal fasciculation and polyphasic waves. So miscellaneous facts, you're welcome, is that potential complications of decor veins repair is injury to the superficial radial nerve. And you should repair this if possible. If it is not possible, you can do a transposition into the brachioradialis. 
Post tourniquet syndrome is characterized by edema, stiffness, pallor, weakness without paralysis and subjective numbness. It happens when you go beyond the two hours of recommended tourniquet time. And if longer is needed, then give the patient five minutes of perfusion for every 30 minutes. All right. We are done with nerve compressions. Thank you for listening in. I will edit this down heavily before you ever hear this. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.